Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. For a country that cares so little about the atmosphere and climate in their own neck of the woods, it appears that China has an incredibly unconventional interest in meteorological and atmospheric data all over the rest of the world. Astronomers say that a Chinese satellite has been caught on video beaming down green lasers over the Hawaiian islands. At a time when tensions are boiling over between Beijing and Washington, After several foreign objects, including a massive Chinese spy balloon, were shot down over the United States in recent days, scientists at the National Astronomical Astronomical Observatory of Japan, or NAOJ, captured the mystery beams of light on video through its Subaru Asahi star camera. Holy bananas. I'm on it with the names today, you guys. On Mauna Kea. Back on January 28th, footage of the incident shows green laser light beaming over the cloudy sky over Mauna Kea in Hawaii. At the time, the space agency said that the lights were thought to be from a NASA remote sensing altimeter satellite. But on February 6th, the NAOJ made a correction note. Instead of revealing that the most likely candidate for the laser beams was China, NASA scientists did a simulation of the trajectory of satellites that have a similar instrument and found a most likely candidate as the ACDL instrument by the Chinese Daki-1 AEMS satellite. Two experts told KHON that the satellite is not thought to be being used as a spy craft on the United States because it is a craft that is known by governments across the globe. But but the purpose of the green laser beams remains something of a mystery. University of Hawaii Institute of Astronomy's Roy Gal told the outlet that it's likely measuring environmental pollutants. Um, yeah, because China obviously cares so much about pollutants. It has many different instruments on it, some kind of topographical mapping, or they're also used for measuring stuff in the Earth's atmosphere. And... I think that's what it is. Environmental measurement satellite, he said. Former Chief of Staff of Marine Forces Pacific Ray Lahuru cast doubts on this theory, questioning, quote, why the Chinese, who are probably the most prolific polluters on the planet, would be collecting data on pollutants on this side of the Pacific. Amen, Ray. I'm right there with you. We're on the same page. On Sunday, North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, and North Northern Command General Glenn Van Herc said that defense officials are working to identify the latest objects and are not ruling anything, including UFOs, out at this time. We're calling them objects, not balloons, for a reason, he said. I'll let the intel community and the counterintelligence community figure that out. Now, China is accusing the U.S. of illegally flying spy bl- spy balloons into its own airspace, an allegation that is denied by Washington. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin 
told reporters Monday that the U.S. has sent high-altitude balloons into its airspace more than 10 times since January of 2022. Mr. Wenman gave no evidence for this bold claim. Chinese officials earlier said they had spotted and planned to shoot down an unidentified object flying close to a major naval base in Qingdao. White House National Secretary er, Security Spokesman John Kirby denied the accusation in an interview with MSNBC on Monday morning. For clarification, he was pressed on whether or not the United States was flying craft in the contested airspace, and he would not say no. He just continued to reiterate Chinese airspace. Regardless, it's beginning to feel like we're fighting two cold wars and stretching ourselves so thin that a hot conflict would not be good for us. To support that point, NATO allies are worrying about dwindling ammo stockpiles as they try to keep Ukraine's troops firing. In the 12 months since President Vladimir Putin ordered Russian troops to invade Ukraine, one of the biggest surprises has been the willingness with which Western countries, especially in Europe, have handed over increasingly sophisticated military equipment for Ukraine to use. At times, debates around sending certain types of weapons, most notably tanks, have been testy and caused high-level diplomatic spats. But given the scale of the challenge and how long it has dragged on, the generosity of European leaders, often cast as cynical and self-interested, and their publics has been a surprise to some observers. The author, author of this article can speak for himself. I feel that this is par for the course of the warmongers who thrive off of the conflict. Um, it's all the more surprising for the fact that the donating of this military equipment and, crucially, ammunition, has left the stock cupboards of European militaries looking rather bare, according to defense officials and experts. It's hard to get exact numbers on what weapons individual nations currently hold in their arsenals due to, obviously, the sensitivity of that information. However, since the start of the war, European nations have donated a wide range of weapons, from anti-tank missiles to artillery rounds and tank shells. Richard Schereff, who's a retired British Army general and NATO's former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, said, this is critical to national and European security. You don't want to demonstrate your vulnerabilities to any potential aggressor. But at the same time, people need to understand that this is serious, something that has to be done urgently. Multiple European defense and security sources have told different news outlets that there are serious concerns at just how much of Europe's ammunition has been used on the battlefield and not replaced. One senior government official of a major European military power said that it's something we all know about, but don't know what to do about it. Another Western defense source explained that senior uh, figures in the armed forces have repeatedly raised concerns with them about it. Oh, I'm sure the U.S. government will help you out with that. They seem to enjoy stealing money from their citizens to fill the coffers of other countries. Don't worry, we got you, bro. I say that in jest because even the biggest supplier of weapons to Ukraine and the world's top military exporter, the United States, is having trouble keeping up with the demand. 
our own defense officials are worried that the United States was running low on some high-end weapons systems and ammunition available to ship to Ukraine. But we're the United States of Ukraine now, so throwing ourselves on the grenade for Ukraine is all that matters, right? Last month, Admiral Daryl Cottle, commander of U.S. Fleet Forces Command, called on the nation's defense industries to step up their game, saying, quote, you're not delivering the ordinance we need. It's so essential to winning, and I can't do that without the ordinance. Cottle said at a symposium in Washington last month, adding that the United States is, quote, going against a competitor here and a potential adversary. That is like nothing we've ever seen before. That's an interesting line, huh? And I feel like that should be explored a little bit more at a later date. On Monday night, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg told reporters ahead of a meeting of alliance officials that, quote, the current rate of Ukraine's ammunition expenditure is many times higher than our current rate of production. This puts our defense industries under strain. For example, the waiting time for large caliber ammunition has increased from 12 to 28 months. Orders placed today would only be delivered two and a half years from now. So we need to ramp up production and invest in our production capacity. Ah, there it is. The not so subtle ask of the American taxpayer to open their wallet in the name of war. All of the NATO countries must take a serious strategic look at this. We might be at the stage where we need to tell bicycle manufacturers to pivot and start making ammunition. The only way we're going to get back on track is to prepare for the worst case, which means relearning lessons from the Cold War to avoid another world war. Of course, the vast majority of people involved in European defense at any serious level stand firmly by the support they have provided to Ukraine. The looming ammunition crisis has, however, revealed that policymaking is often based on convenient assumptions of the best-case scenario. After all, taking no action in the short term, at least, is often cheaper than taking action at all. And while we're discussing our uncanny ability to stretch ourselves thin, the United States is warning that it will stand with and defend the Philippines. After reports that Beijing's Coast Guard used laser devices to temporarily blind the crew of a Philippine Coast Guard ship, according to the State Department. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called China's conduct provocative and unsafe and said it interfered with the Philippines' lawful operations in the South China Sea. More broadly, the PRC's dangerous operational behavior directly threatens regional peace and stability, infringes upon freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, as guaranteed under international law, and undermines the rules-based international order, Price said. The crew of the BRP Malapascua, I don't know how to say that, was allegedly temporarily blinded by the laser devices as the ship sailed around Second Thomas Shoal, a submerged reef in the South China Sea to which the U.S. says China has no lawful maritime claims. Again, this is where we get into like contested areas. Does the United States have unidentified flying objects flying around in Chinese airspace that China considers their airspace 
but we consider it to be neutral territory. Uh, The Philippines Coast Guard says that the green laser light illuminated twice and the Chinese vessel made dangerous maneuvers in the water, blocking the delivery of food and supplies to military personnel aboard the BRP Sierra Madre, a ship intentionally grounded on the shoal. And what the Philippines say is a blatant disregard for and a clear violation of Philippine sovereign rights. The United States stands with our Philippine allies in upholding the rules-based international maritime order and reaffirms an armed attack on the Philippine armed forces, public vessels, or aircraft, including those of the Coast Guard in the South China Sea, would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments, Price asserted, citing a 1951 mutual defense treaty. An international tribunal decided in 2016 that China had no claims to the area and is legally bound to abide by the ruling. But China has rejected the ruling and now contends that the Philippines' ship trespassed into the waters of the shoal, which it calls Renai Reef, without Beijing's permission. At what point do we discuss the fact that we cannot be everywhere all the time defending everyone, while we've literally had breaches in our airspace, not just in the last week, but since 2017? I mean, we'll eventually learn the lesson. The remaining question is whether or not we'll be too late. Some would argue it already is. I'm not quite there, but every day pushes me just a little bit closer. California's electric grid faces years of potential blackouts and failure as state leaders continue pushing aggressive measures to transition to renewable energy sources. The state's grid, which is still mainly powered by fossil fuels, is undergoing a major shift from natural gas and coal power to renewable power, like wind and solar. Simultaneously, state officials are pushing an electrification of the economy, particularly in the transportation sector through electric vehicle mandates, which is expected to increase the pressure on the grid. California is drastically cutting our dependence on fossil fuels and cleaning our air, Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom said in a November announcement unveiling the world's first detailed pathway to carbon neutrality. The state's plan involves goals to slash greenhouse gas emissions by 85%, cut oil usage by 94%, and deploy more solar and wind capacity over the next two decades. The aggressive plan to overhaul the state's energy system came three months after a top California environmental agency moved forward with a rule requiring that all new vehicle sales to be electric by 2035. In 2021, which is the most recent year with data, Wind and solar accounted for 25% of total electricity generated in California, while natural gas accounted for more than 50% of in-state electricity generation. And 19% of new car sales in California were zero-emission vehicles, state data shows. Experts have said that environmental mandates implemented by Gavin Newsom and his administration have already created massive instability in the grid, an issue they argued is only going to get worse as existing fossil fuel power generation capacity was taken offline 
and replaced by intermittent sources. They're going to have to build an outrageous amount of wind and solar in a very short period of time if they want to accomplish their objectives of electrifying. Our whole transportation sector and whole home heating and cooling and residential sector. Uh, that was Edward Ring, who's a senior fellow and co founder of the California Policy Center. He said there's a burden to the consumer that's going to get very heavy. Even if they can pull it off without blackouts, the burden to the consumer is going to be ridiculous. Over summer, the California Independent System Operator, or CASO, The state's electric grid operator repeatedly warned that high demand would significantly strain utility providers' ability to supply consumers' electricity amid a heat wave. CASO issued an Energy Emergency Alert 3, which is its highest alert level at one point in early September, saying residents should maximize conservation and expect rotating outages, and a flex alert for more than seven consecutive days. The operator also recommended residents refrain from charging their electric vehicles to reduce stress on the grid. Oh, the irony in that one. In its annual report that was released in December, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, or NERC, a nonpartisan grid watchdog, stated that California faces a high risk of energy or capacity shortfall in the coming years, particularly during the summer months as a result of traditional power plant retirements and increased demand. Ebel added that the intermittent nature of solar and wind, meaning that they produce less power relative to their total generation capacity, could create instability. Green energy developers and government officials often highlight total capacity of new renewable power projects but they fail to mention how much actual power the project is expected to produce. Solar panels, for example, produce only 25% and wind turbines produce 34% of their listed capacity, respectively, according to the Energy Information Administration. Coal, natural gas, and nuclear power plants, meanwhile, produce 49, 54, and 93% of their The only way the electrification of the transportation sector and of home heating and cooling can work is if the utility sector continues to build natural gas-fired plants and looks to building nuclear plants and perhaps building new coal plants because of the grid in these states that are pushing these policies and are already overloaded. The jokes write themselves, you guys. I'm going to repeat that just one more time, just to let this sink in. Let it wash over you. The only way the electrification of the transportation sector and of the home heating and cooling can work is if the utility sector builds natural gas-fired plants and looks to build nuclear plants and perhaps building new coal plants because the grid in these states that are pushing these policies is already overloaded. Natural gas, coal, and nuclear to maintain the power grid 
It's being overloaded by electrical changes and modifications. It's, oh man, you guys. Senator Dianne Feinstein has said that she will not seek re-election in 2024. She turns 90 in June. She's the oldest member of Congress and has faced questions in recent years about her cognitive health and memory, though she has defended her effectiveness representing a state that is home to nearly 40 million people. The announcement came after several prominent California Democrats, including Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, have declared Senate campaigns. With Feinstein now 30-year veteran of the Senate, there hasn't been a wide-open competition for her seat in decades. Decades. There should never be a seat in Congress that the plural form of decade should be used to describe someone's time in office. While I want to wish her well, she has championed some of the worst gun control legislation this nation has ever seen. And I cannot say that I'm not glad she's finally leaving. Take care, Ms. Feinstein. And that is your Wednesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I appreciate you guys hanging out with me. We'll be doing Liberty Library. It is our last week of Alice Huxley's Brave New World. Next week, we begin uh, Waco, A Survivor's Tale by David Thibodeau. You are welcome to join us next week if you would like to. That is on Twitter Spaces live on Wednesday evenings at 10.15 Eastern Standard Time. Um, As always, please like, share, subscribe, shoot this out to your people. You guys take care. Have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.